Continuing in the book of James, uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 26 and 27 to finish up chapter 1. And as we finish up chapter 1, we'll be taking a break for during the summer and start uh, the series, uh, just a summer series on the questions that uh, were submitted and uh, different questions about faith that uh, were asked about Scripture. And so we'll start the series uh, next Sunday. And uh, so today, looking at verses 26 and 27, before we do that, I just, uh, again, a quick review. Um, but we're talking about religion today. And as soon as you mention religion, uh, you know, there, there is a point, and, and it's still common, people say, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. And there's a reason for that. And part of it is because of what happens within the framework of, and I'm putting religions now in quotation, in religion is that people get sidetracked with the rituals of religion and traditions of religion and make that the object of their obedience and neglect the who they've come to worship. And so we don't want to get identified with being religious because it's also identified with being like the Pharisees of the time of Jesus. They were religious, and they were clearly outside of where they needed to be, the majority of them, where they needed to be in their walk. And so this idea of not religious is the idea of you know, empty rituals. And when they say empty, meaning that they're not full of praise and worship, they're just done by rote, uh, without commitment, without a changed life. And uh, I looked at, at, at different things that you could put on a list like this, and then I realized what we need to understand and, and is that I, I thought, thought I'm getting too sidetracked on that because here James is using the word religious and religion as something good. And we need to understand that religion in and of itself is not bad. It's what people do with it. Isn't it the way everything is? God gives us a gift or He gives us something and its its use or its identification is good or bad by what we do with it. And so religion is in that same context. So I wanted to, to look at this and say, you know, James was concerned too about this word religion and its use inappropriately. Uh, and, and I think of like what James had to be thinking of was like Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, the woes. Seven different times Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he said, You do this, you do that. You keep keep these commandments, but they don't mean anything. And finally, his conclusion was that you you are whitewashed tombs. And what that was set for was the idea of, of at Passover, which is the time that Jesus was sharing this, they would go through all the, the, the cemeteries there was, uh, and, and, and people would go to the, the tombstone like we might go tomorrow and, and, and put a flag on somebody's grave for Memorial Day. They would go and memory, in memory of these people, of their family and their, their ancestry, and clean up the tombs and the gravesides, and they would literally whitewash them, make them you know, clean looking. But he says, Jesus says, they're white on the outside, they're clean on the outside, but their bones, they're dead on the inside. And so Jesus was saying the same thing James is saying in that sense that religion can be one of two things. It can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing. So I put here instead of, of religion can, is, is, is bad or something like that, it's not bad until the way uh, uh, supersedes the who. Does that make sense to you? The way we do things supersedes the who we're doing it for. And maybe you've been in a church that's like that. Uh, I can recall one congregation that, that we were, if we were in church, uh, there, there were certain things that just had to be in a particular way. And if it was done any other way, it couldn't possibly have been service and worship. 
even down to the point of the sanctuary, which would be like the room we're in here, being a holy place. By the way, the building is purchased with, with money committed to God. So in that context, it's a holy place. It's, but, but it's not a holy place because, yeah, and, and therefore we come to it. It's holy because we're here in it. We are the church. And so there's that saying that goes along with this, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. I don't go to church, I am the church. Okay, uh, and, and so th- those things can be very confusing to somebody coming into uh, church for the first time. And so uh, we're going to look at a little bit of it today. Uh, the, the, this one church I was thinking of, uh, there was a complaint that came to, to uh, the elders, and then it was directed back to me to find out why it was going on. It was during the week, uh, apparently somebody was walking around in the sanctuary. I thought, how do they know somebody's walking around in the sanctuary? Is there a camera that I don't know about? And what it was, was Monday morning, they come in and they clean. And after they're done cleaning, they, when they, they back out of the church, literally, vacuuming the nap so that it all goes the same way on the carpet. And if you step on the carpet, it moves the nap the other way and it leaves your footprints. The irony is, is I was the person walking around in the sanctuary. And I didn't know we weren't supposed to do that. And, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's just one of those things. You learn uh, certain rules. One of the rules was uh, you are done preaching at 11.55. Period. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. First time I get to preach on a Sunday morning, nobody told me the rules. I got the, the pulpit at, at a quarter till. And there was a big choir anthem and a few other things that had taken more time than normal. And uh, I went in about five minutes till a family got up and walked out. And a few minutes later, another family got up and walked out. Well, I immediately looked finding an end to my sermon because I thought I'd crossed some line that I didn't know about which I had, but I was thinking I'd preached it. I'd said something offensive. And, uh, and being that I was a novice still with the pulpit, that, that was entirely possible. Uh, in fact, I still do it today, put my foot in my mouth and misstate or misquote a scripture. And uh, so I found a quick end to it, and, then I, and afterwards the elders approached me, and they were really quite upset with me. How come you ran over? And I said, ran over what? You know, I mean, you know, and it was, we end. We have people in our congregation that have fixed uh, lunch reservations at such and such a place. And we end at five minutes till. So you can see, we can get caught up with all sorts of things. By the way, it was even interesting that the elders, uh, the, the, the regular pastor had gone to what they call a sermon barrel and was preaching old sermons over again. So after the, uh, the, the we did communion before Offering and then communion and then the, serv- the sermon. And, a- and after communion, they just went to the back and then walked out and all had a smoke. And after the service was over, they greeted people at the door. So church can be all sorts of kinds of things. By the way, every one of those people would have counted themselves religious. James says there's something about that that we have to look at very seriously. Uh, as we've gone through this passage, starting with verse 19, uh, the first few verses we dealt with what is true Christianity in the sense that you know the word is implanted in you. If I can grab for anything out of that passage, and 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 Alan emphasized that so well when he preached that a couple of weeks ago that the word is implanted in you. It's the Holy Spirit coming in you. Jeremiah says, I, God says, I will put it into your heart, the laws of my, and you you will know it. Okay, and, and if the word's implanted in you, then something happens. And James says you won't be just a hearer of the word, you will be a doer of the word. And then he comes to verse 26 and 27 where we are today. And I'll read those verses. If anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Three things there. One thing we've got to look at is our speech, the way we speak. Our compassion. And the way we live within the framework of the world and which is influencing us most. The Word of God or the things of the world. And so we'll look at that this morning. By the way, when we look at religion, we have rituals still. And I'm cautious when I say that because I, I, I want to look at this from the most positive point of view. Please. What might some of the rituals be? Things that you do within the framework of your worship service to honor and glorify and worship God. That's a ritual. It's something that you do over and over and over again. It's part of the worship service. We do it every time or, or, or frequently. What's one, what's one of the things we do? Praying. I heard communion. Singing. Preaching. So I wrote these down. Baptism. It is what's considered a sacrament, meaning it's something that God has ordained that we as Christians do. Communion, again, something Christ ordained and put into effect. Fellowship. In general, he says, don't forsake the fellowship. Coming together in, in fellowship, as some are prone to doing. That's Sundays. And it can be other days as well. Now, it's an interesting thing. I have to give a side note here. There was a point in time when we first became, Kathy and I first became Christians in the 70s, that church happened, we were in a very conservative church, and it happened Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night at least. And if you were in a home Bible study, one more night a week. I can remember when I started going to this church that my, my brother-in-law uh, was saying, oh my gosh, you're going to that church where they're going to get you to go in, you're going to be gone all day Sunday and in the middle of the week and at least another night of the week. And he was right. We were. And we didn't do it because we had to. We did it because it, was, it seemed like the, the, that's what you do. Okay. Now, if it hadn't been available, would we have done it otherwise? I don't know. It was just the way they were doing it. Today, I, I, I think some of it has been lost in, in some ways. But the other side of it is, is that uh, going Sunday seems to be the regular thing. And in fact, even that has become... Uh, a statistical thing that says if you're if you are you're considered a regular church goer if you're in church twice a month. Where it used to be you were a regular church goer if you were in church three times a week. Okay, is I'm not going to say that's bad or good because it depends on how you were doing it and why you were doing it. And it really has a lot to do with what you're doing with the rest of your time. So Prayer, singing, offering, our giving. Some people feel that, you know, man, you know, you, you, you've got to give X number of dollars, uh, a percentage, tenth, a tithe, because that's what God said in the Old Testament. Well, if you really go to the Old Testament and we really give the way the Old Testament gave, we're going to give about 23%. So, you know, if you want to get really legalistic about it, okay, Giving is something that God brings into the factor of as He blesses you, you are to respond with what you can. And uh, reading the Scriptures, reading the Bible. The Bible is part of our worship. It's part of what we do. So, and again, looking at this Scripture, verses 26 through 27, I'm actually going to go... <laughs> You probably get tired of this. I'm going to go backwards through this um, because it, it, it falls into a place, a, a rhythm that I want you to see. So look at, it, at, at, at verse 27 first. And, and the very last part of it uh, is separation from the world. It says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
This is extremely important because this is going to have an impact on the rest of what we're talking about this morning. How the world influences you. At what part are you conforming to the things of the world on a regular basis? And I could, you, you could put it in a simple format, and I know that it, this is a great generalization, but generally speaking, we look at say, well, I have to conform to the world to an extent. I have to work because if I don't work, I can't what? I can't pay my bills. I can't. Well, somebody could say, well, give up working and trust God. Okay. But God tells us through Paul, if you don't work, don't eat. So working is a thing that we get involved in. So I am conforming to the system in a sense. So how much can we conform before we, and, and what is, is, is this idea of, of not being conformed? Well, let's look at, at something uh, to start with. First John. Uh, chapter 4, which is just a, a few pages over. John writes, Beloved, verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard it was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John is basically saying we are to test everything. And he says everything has a spirit about it. And when we're talking spirit, we're not taking, talking ooh, you know, demonic spirits. There, there was a point in time in the church where we, we spent a, a season in the church you know, looking for demons under every rock. You know, and, and, and that's not what we're to do here. But what we are to do is to say, as I participate in this, what is its premise? What is its, what is its saying? And, and, and where does it draw its, its understanding about things? And somebody says, well, is that everything? Yeah, it's everything. I use uh, education as a primary example. I do not stand up here and tell you that if you don't have your kids in a private school or homeschool or whatever, that, you know, you know, shame on you, back anathema or something. However, I do believe that we as Christians need to be aware of what the spirit of the education is. Is there a spirit about it? Absolutely. Ask at a public board meeting, school board meeting, do you declare God Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. What are they going to tell you? No. Why? Because we are uh, part of a country that believes in freedom of religion, and all religions are, are uh, to be uh, acknowledged in some context in some way. Therefore, we're not going to acknowledge one. So much so that we even have the idea that's being challenged. It's challenged. Somebody says how it's, it's not challenged you know, enough, but it's actually it's challenged every year in some form of, of state or, or federal legislation. And that's to have the word God in the Pledge of Allegiance or in God we trust on our money. Okay? Even to that point. The reason is, is that we have a secular government. We have a secular education system. When it says secular, it means not from God, but from man. And as a result, it's involved in teaching and preaching, if you will, humanism. And so, uh, I'm not saying that, that, you know, that, that we should all run away from the, the public education, but we need to know that's what's being taught. Why? So that when our kids go there, we know what they're hearing. And if they're hearing something that is anti-God's Word, we can balance that out somehow, either through the church in Sunday school or in home Bible study. Or one-on-one conversations. So that you're making sure your kids 
are able to separate the truth. Testing the spirit. The same thing with where you work. There may be some things that you're going to be asked to do that you can't do because it would, would test your, it would take your faith uh, and, and, and step all over it. That might mean that this job's not for you if that's required. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that this is where it starts. This is where this idea of remaining unstained, we have to realize there's stuff out here that can subtly be a stain. The idea of unstained here corresponds with the idea of the offerings that they were to bring to the temple that were, were without blemish. To the best of their ability, they were picking an animal that had no sores, no scars, no wounds, no defects. It was the best they had. Okay, We are to look at the same thing. We want to be the best offering, and we'll get to that in a minute, as we can to the, be you know, to the Lord. And so the result is is that we are to stay unstained from the world. Jesus says, you know, very distinctly, we are in the world, but not of the world. John chapter 17, John chapter 15, Jesus talks about how the world's going to hate us. It's going to come against us. Why? Because we stand in a particular category of people who have a belief system that separates us from the world. And for some in the world, that's going to mean they don't want to have anything to do with us. Some of you, maybe when you became Christians, found that you no longer had the same circle of friends. You know, you no longer were wanted. You know, I, I can recall one place in the job site. It was, it, was, it was funny. Nobody knew that I was a pastor. They did, didn't actually know me as a Christian, but they, they knew that I didn't participate in certain things. I didn't hang around after work and, and sit in the back of the truck with the guys and have a few beers and tell us some few stories and jokes and whatever. Uh, and somebody says, why do you want to go home? I says, well, that's where my wife is. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's where my family is. Uh, and, and so uh, they, they knew something was different. In fact, a few of them had gotten to the point where if they had a dirty joke to tell or something like that that was new, they waited until I wasn't around. Until and, and, and nobody necessarily asked me why until one of them went to church with his girlfriend and I happened to be preaching. And the next morning on the job site, we got there early because our particular area had to, we had to get things out of the way, our equipment and stuff in particular places. You could, it, was, it was really quiet. And he hollered across the construction yard, Hey, Pastor Bob! Everything stops and people are looking, you know. Um, people, you know, when, when they find out you're, you know, when I'm a pastor, some people, they say, oh, what do we call you? That is, do, we, do we call you priest? Do we call you father? And, and at that point, I feel like saying, no, the right Reverend Robert. But um, the, the idea is, is that, that, you know, we, we look at Christians from a from the world standpoint, we look at Christians differently. That's appropriate, by the way. Jesus said it's going. To, it's the way it's going to be. Some people look at Christians with admiration, and say, "Wow, they they do good things. They're nice people." Da, 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 da. Other people look at them because they make, maybe it makes them feel guilty about their own lives, and as a result, don't want to have anything to do with you. I had a an acquaintance who, I don't know how many times. Steve tried to, not this Steve, uh, a guy I worked with in, in, in San Francisco, uh, in, in San Jose, uh, was the warehouse manager, how many times he tried to set me up to bring me down. And basically his thing was, my rules are too strict. I, there's no way you can live up to them. I said, that's the whole point, Steve. I can't live up to them. That's why I need Christ. And, you know, we've, we went around and around with it. But I'm just saying, so we have this picture. We're not in the world. Uh, we're in the world, but we're not of it. Now, the not of it, we're covered, okay? So to be in it, though, we, are to, we, we do live in it. And so as we're here, God wants us to live, to see, to hear, to speak 
through the implanted Word in us. That's extremely important. That's why I keep coming back to this idea of the implanted Word in our heart. We are to see the world through Christ's eyes. We are to see, to hear the world through Christ's ears. We are to speak the, the, to the world through Christ's words. Uh, we're to have the, the, the sympathy and compassion and, and, and response to the things that are around us. This idea of undefiled is also no contamination. How, I, I think of, and, and it's funny, I thought of where you worked, Steve. <laughs> because if there, if there was the slightest bit of contamination, what happened? There was a lockdown. Nuclear plant. And I, and I just think about that, you know, you know uh, is, is that, that's a concern, you know. Uh, you have different haz- hazards that uh, a spill on on the on the, the freeway where a, 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 a tanker uh, truck uh, rolls and spills uh, gasoline, and the next thing you see is this hazmat team come out uh, trying to clean up as much of it as it can because we don't want to contaminate either the ground or what the water supply because. There, that, it's, it's extremely detrimental and it takes a while for it to clear out if it does. And it, and it's gonna, it can change everything for a season even in the sense or even more in reference to fishing and other things. So contamination. Is, it, I Just one more time throwing one more picture in here. Uh, pure, unstained, undefiled, not contaminated. Okay, verse 27, the first part says... Uh, you know, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans, widows in their affliction or in their need. Now, we just read Matthew 25 as our uh, Scripture reading this morning. What is it that Jesus says? You went to the hungry. You went to the unclothed. You went to the thirsty. You visited those who were sick and even in prison. And, and you ministered. And people are saying, when did we do this? We, we, I don't recall in my mind. And he says, you did it because you, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And the other people, the goats, by the way, are, it says you didn't do this. And they said, well, <laughs> we, we, we went to the temple. <laughs> we went to church. We did this, we did that, we did that, we tied. He says, yeah, but you didn't minister. You didn't reach out to the needy. You were not looking through God's eyes. You were looking through your own eyes. And you missed what God felt was most important. Do you realize that the sojourner is a one word for it? Alien is another word for it. Non-resident is another word for it. <laughs> uh, we'd call them today immigrants. Registered or unregistered. <laughs> And, and, and it says, when an immigrant, a sojourner, an alien is coming through your land, make sure that his need is met. In fact, they were so insistent that, that, that as he's walking along, what if there was no person to walk up to him to meet his need? He knew something about the Hebrew people. As you're walking through the field, the, air, the edge areas of the field were not harvested. Why? so that the sojourner and the poor and the hungry could come in and pick and harvest the glean, you know, the gleanings, if you will, of the, what wasn't harvested so they would have enough. God says that's, that's what you have to do. This is the way I want you to be. And so this is nothing new to the Hebrew people, and James especially being a Jewish man himself, he's looking at this and saying, the Jews, the Pharisees weren't doing it. They were religious, but they were had a religion that wasn't working for them. They didn't realize it, but it wasn't working. So visit the orphans and the widows. And by the way, the idea of, of orphans and widows is, is a almost a, uh, a, a term to say anyone in need. Orphans and widows was the, key, the catchphrase but it meant people who are hurting, suffering, and, and don't have the means to meet their needs for the moment. Come alongside. 
Well, that brings us to verse 26, going backwards as I have. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Boy, I looked at that word worthless. I don't like it. Get to it in a minute. First question should come, at least, you know, as I was looking at this. How important is what you say? The words that we speak, how important are they? And how often are they important? If I'm not at church, are my words important? I recall outside of the sanctuary, a particular person that was in a leadership role in this particular church had a foul mouth. That caught me off guard. And I asked the pastor about it. He said, oh, that's just the so-and-so of it. That's just the way he is. No big deal. He would never have said that. And, and he drew the line. As soon as he stepped through that door the, the, at church, the sanctuary door, no foul language. At a board meeting, if it was at church, no foul language. At a meeting at somebody's house, no problem. Foul language is okay. I have sanctuary language. Not just Sunday language, I have sanctuary language. Okay? To him, his understanding was, my words are critical and important in the sense of my relationship with God here. But they don't matter here. By the way, the, 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 the Pharisees were the same way. So how important is what we say, what we speak? Well, one thing is, and it's an interesting thing that James draws here, it reflects on our self-control. We are told to, to have self-control, restraint, not to just do whatever we feel like doing, but, but again, bring it to a standard of some kind and check it. Well, the standard we have for what we think, say and do is the Word of God. Even the coarse jesting, the Word of God says, is not appropriate for a believer. Coarse jesting would encompass the idea of, uh, you know, those off-color jokes. So I was looking at this and I was thinking, gosh, having just come through Proverbs, I, I had a bunch of notes still on Proverbs. And uh, I was going through one of them and it was something that I hadn't used. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Sam Storms, but he's a, a current pastor. He's written a number of books. And, uh, you know, definitely evangelical, conservative. And, uh, and he, he was saying in this one article that he wrote uh, that there was approximately 150 verses in the book of Proverbs that addresses how we speak. Okay? And that is approximately one out of every six words in the book of Proverbs. And the one that he quoted that I had written down, it was he probably had pages of them. I, I just had written down just one out of 150. <laughs> Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it shall eat its fruit. Now, the, the idea is those who love the power of the tongue and what it can do to hurt shall eat the fruit of that. Okay? And he put it in the full context. But the idea is death and life are in the words we speak. So I was looking you know, further in uh, the book of Ephesians. In the fourth chapter, Paul instruct us, instructs us. Uh, gosh, where to start? Well, I'm just going to start at verse 25 for the sake of this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. By the way, who's our neighbor? Anybody who happens to be in our proximity. Jesus made that real clear. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 
of like mind. Okay. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor during honest work in his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk. By the way, where we're coming from in here is, is the idea of new life in Christ. We put off the world and we're putting on. And when we put on Christ, the implanted word, these are some of the things that should be, begin to happen. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If He'd left that part off, we might have gotten through it okay. But as God in Christ forgave you. How did He forgive you? Unconditionally, and it is finished. He no longer holds it against you. I am not to hold. What if somebody does it again? Peter asked that question, by the way. How many times do I have to forgive the same guy for the same sin? Ah, seven times 70. That's, that's, that's double what the Pharisees said. Jesus said seven times 70. He just said seven times. Excuse me, Peter just said seven times. And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. Now, of course, me being the legalist that I am, that's 490 times and I keep a record. I looked at these verses and I, and I realized that you know, if, if my tongue is in control, my speech is one that is to lift up. If it's out of control, I tear down. If I'm in control, I bless. If I'm out of control, I curse. If I'm in control, I love. If I'm out of control, I hate. If I'm in control, I'm kind. If I'm out of control, I'm mean. If I'm in control, I speak peace and work for peace. If I'm out of control, I speak into chaos and corrupt and promote chaos. If I'm in control, I speak for the things that are good. All things that come from heaven, all things that God provides, you know, things that are good, things from God. If I'm out of control, I speak of things from the world. And by the way, the things of the world, John gave a, a definition of them. If they don't declare Jesus Christ come in the flesh, they are of the Antichrist. Somebody's going to say, well, then you just said a little while ago that public education is of the Antichrist. Yeah, I guess it is. But so is a good portion of our government, and so is a good portion of a lot of other things. It's of the world. The world is of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist is already with us. It was with them then, and it's with us now. Does that mean I have the right to turn around and you know, look at somebody and say, you are the Antichrist? You know, maybe not. But, but the idea is, is that I still am called to evaluate. And the only standard I have to evaluate is this. It comes to this. Is it proclaiming and justifying and coming underneath the Word of God? Or is it not? By the way, in order to do that, what do I have to do? I have to know the Word of Oh, implanted in my heart. Okay. I hesitate to read this. Only because of the pain it brings to me. Matthew chapter 12. We talked about the fruit of the tree. The, you know, if, if you, know, you're, you're, you like the power to speak words and, and take control of it yourself, you know, that you're going to reap the fruit of it. Here's what Jesus says about that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. 
You brood of vipers. By the way, who is he speaking to? The Pharisees. The religious. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Ouch. That's my own footnote. And somebody says, does that mean believers are going to be held accountable before the throne of God for the words that we speak? I think so. While we're not in the great white throne judgment, there is a judgment for believers, and we're going to be held accountable for everything that God has given us and how we used it. And it will be laid on His altar as hay, strubble, sticks, you know, or gold or silver. Now, on a fiery altar, what happens to hay? <laughs> it was some kind of an offering, but it wasn't much. <laughs> Sticks, you know, a little bit more. Wood, meaning something substantial, you know, burns a little while. But the gold and the silver were things that could be refined and would remain. What, what, what Paul is telling the Corinthians when he wrote that was just that he says, we're accountable for how we use the stuff that God gives us. And the words he gives us. The time to speak words he gives us. If we are correct, and we sang this and, 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 and spoke about it before in these last couple of weeks, if every breath that we speak is a gift of God, then every word I speak in that breath should what? Glorify God. Now, the reason why I said ouch is because obviously I'm as guilty as anybody else in the fact that that doesn't happen in my life. But it happens more now than it did in my B.C. days before Jesus in my life. But it's not nearly what it should be. That's why I wrote, ouch. So what to do? Well, go to one of my favorite places at this point to get direction. Some of the Reformation writers called it the fifth gospel, the book of Romans. I'm going to start with verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He even goes on to say, bless those who persecute you and, 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 uh, and other things that go on through that. The idea is, is that our lifestyle is to be one that is looking for the opportunity to show the love of God. And the idea is to let love be genuine means to let it be God's love flowing through you. How are the world going to know we are Christians according to the Gospel of John? By the way, first off, we love one another this way in the body of Christ. So, in the sense of the marks of a true Christian, which is the heading for this title in, in my Bible, is starts with, let love be genuine. By the way, love is the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in us because we're the implanted Word. Okay, And so as a result, there's patience, there's kindness, there's gentleness, there's long-suffering. Verse 3 of chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think of himself more, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The idea of not thinking of yourself highly and thinking with sober judgment is to know who you are before the throne of God. And if that's the case, then I know my sin. I know what I deserve. And I know the grace that God has extended me. And I'm to extend that to other people. Now I'll go back down to the Word. Let your love be genuine. 
if I have judged myself properly and brought myself before the throne of God and rejoice in His grace abundantly, I'm to extend the love He's extended to me to other people. How is this at all possible? Well, it starts by having this attitude. Verse 12, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will. By the way, what is our standard for testing? Go back to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Does he confess that Jesus Christ come in the flesh, Son of God? By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We know it's good and acceptable and perfect when it confesses the Son of God and stands in that and rests in that. So I'm looking at this and it's saying that I would be transformed and there's a number of verses that speak to how we are to, to grow and to learn and, 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 and stuff, but I like this one. It's one of my favorites. Paul's praying for the Colossians, and he says, from, this day, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, and this was Paul's prayer, and along with those who were working with him. So this was the, the, those who are ministering and doing missionary work. This is their prayer for the, the, those coming into the church as new Christians. Praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That comes through the implanting of the Word. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which happens at the point of confession. If you are filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, not worldly wisdom and understanding, because we're being what? Transformed. We are looking for spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding of the things around us. So as to walk, in other words, it's going to change the way we walk, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And as we increase in the knowledge of God, we increase in the knowledge of His will. And as we increase in the knowledge of His will, we gain more spiritual wisdom and more spiritual understanding. As a result, we walk even closer to the Lord in a manner worthy. And as a result, we begin to please God even more, bearing more fruit for Him, and increasing in the knowledge of God, which <laughs> it's called the Colossian cycle. It just spirals up. The more you study, the more you walk in it, the more you live in it, the more you do it, the more it grows in you. The renewing of our mind, is that, that pro, is that, that's a, a process for the renewing of our mind. This is what God calls from us. The idea is, is that James is saying, you don't want a worthless religion. You want a vibrant religion. You want an alive religion. You don't want a defiled religion. You want a holy, unblemished religion. The rituals that we go through are the same rituals when we share communion in just a minute. There's churches all over the world today that have shared communion. Some fall in the category of the church I was declaring earlier that just has the idea of the sanctuary is where we do the holy stuff. The rest of it doesn't matter. And other churches are sharing communion, hopefully the way we are this morning, with hearts that say, create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore a right spirit in me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Don't let your spirit get away from me, but, but continue to fill me with your spirit. Cause me to grow in you. Forgive me, Father, for the things that I have done that are offensive to you, both intentionally, unintentionally, and not even knowing it. And those things that I have done that I don't even know I have done, bring them to mind that I will know not to do them again. 
that I might walk closer to you. Guard my words, Lord, that I might speak grace and mercy and love to those who are here, that I might build up and not be known for one who tears down. That's what James is saying. James is brutally blunt, quite candidly. It's just, he is. And he's not done talking about how we talk, by the way. There's more to come in, in the verses that are ahead. So, I said we're taking a break from James through the summer, but in September we'll come back and start chapter 2 and pick up where we've left off. And so, uh, maybe you would like to make James a book of study through the summer. Something that you meditate on. I think again of our, our picture of making a tree, Lord, Psalm 1. Uh, you know, cause me to think on your word, to dwell on it, to meditate, to think about it, wrestle with it, apply it. And then see if the sermons next week are not even richer, even if we fail to make them richer. <laughs> They'll still be richer than they are today. As we go to communion, I want to read to you again from Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting with the 15th verse. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He, Jesus, is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. That, to me, is the most powerful part of this picture. In Him, all things hold together. Science tells us everything is moving in such a way that it should come apart. And yet, it doesn't. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Firstborn means to be in the position of preeminent here. It has nothing to do with birth or, or, or in that sense, but whose birthright. Okay? He is preeminent in all things. For in Him all the fullness of God has, was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I'd ask the ushers to come forward, pass the communion out, hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share together.